Hey everyone, welcome to DarkCast Interviews. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. DCI is a long-form interview podcast where we talk to game creators about who they are and their work behind the scenes, as well as, obviously, their recent or upcoming video games. In this episode, I talk with Tom Kale from Inkle Studios about their recently released game, Pendragon. Pendragon is a tactical game set after the fall of Camelot that forms its story around the moves you make, the locations you visit, as well as the characters you play as and meet. For more information about the game, check out the show notes for this episode on DarkStation.com. There you can also find the original DarkCast as well as other video game reviews, previews, and features. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at DarkStation underscore com, find us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube, and email us at podcast at DarkStation.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. and welcome back to Darkcast Interviews. I'm Jonathan Miley. Joining me today is Tom Kale from Inkle Studios to talk about... Oh, I, I asked you how to pronounce your, your last name, which I'm always terrible about. Uh, but I didn't ask you how you guys pronounce the title of this game. Is it Pendragon <sighs> or Pendragon? <laughs> well, I think it's Pendragon. Okay. But you see, I think it's a Welsh word, and we have never even tried to <laughs> pronounce any of the Welsh words properly. Um, we researched all of the Welsh stuff as best we could, but um, <laughs> it's a really hard language. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, I, I can imagine. Um, I watched uh, all of the show Gavin and Stacey, which is wonderful and great. <laughs> And everybody from Wales in that show, you basically cannot understand. You have to turn the subtitles on. Uh, so so I, I get that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, welcome, Tom. How are you doing? I'm real good. Yeah, real good. Um, so the game came out yesterday. And as a special treat, and also just to stop us sitting there nervously refreshing the page, uh, the bosses have given us the couple of days off, which has been really nice. So today yeah. I've been playing Splunky 2. Okay. And brewing beer. Fantastic. Those sound that sounds like a great uh way to pass time right there. Um <laughs> So uh I've actually I, I realized this as I was kind of writing some questions. I think I have talked to Inkle the most out of any studio uh to to talk about games. Uh oh, wow. a lot of times like we'll we'll I'll talk to a studio and then it may be several years before I talk to them again. But I got to talk to Joe and John Several years ago, about 80 days when that came out, and then I talked to John last year about Heaven's Vault, and now I'm talking to you about uh, Pentragon. So I guess you guys are, are my official like returning guests, which I, I think is fantastic because I love your games, and I'm going to be you know a little goober and uh, be just super excited about you know talking to you about all of your stuff. But anyway... Um, I had a reason for going on that tangent besides just saying that I like your games. Uh, and I, I don't know what it was now. So we'll just we'll move on. 
Um, <laughs> so, I mean, we have not met before. That's the no, thing. we have um, not. So I joined the company actually after 80 days. So okay. that would be one of the reasons for that. And on Heaven's Vault, it's sort of that was my first sort of big project. And that was like five years or something. Four yeah. years was eight. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a long time. When I joined. Um, and that basically brought us to Pendragon. Um, so... Yeah, you've done all of our games, actually, except for the sorcery ones, which right, yes. um, are I way do. before my time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, actually, while while uh, playing Pendragon, I, I went and reinstalled all of the, the sorcery games, because I've never actually really given those any sort of fair shot. I tried to play them on iOS, and I've gotten to the point where I just, I just deleted all of the games on my phone, because uh, I never play games on my phone. I, I don't know, yeah. like, what point in time it was that I did that. It, there, there was sure. one, and I played plenty of games on the phone, but that is just not now. Uh, no, I completely so... agree. I mean, we have exactly the same discussion um, at Inkle, and, like, it's a real shame for us because we used to think of ourselves as a mobile studio. Um, yeah. Like, the company was literally founded because um, of the realization that mobile was just a really good place to play interactive stories like it's sort of like a little book that you can poke like what could be better than that <laughs> um, and that's definitely where the sorcery games came out of and they are brilliant by the way i feel i can say this objectively because i never worked on any of them <laughs> and in fact having playing them sort of was one of the reasons i thought wow i'd love to work with these guys yeah and um, like and there's still nothing like them there's lots of sort of map-based, vaguely choose-your-own-adventure-y, you know, adventure games, but they're just so fun. Like, they've got so much humour, and you really get to explore, and there's so much stuff to see, and they're really big, despite being able to just breeze through them if you just take the critical path. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're really great. I really couldn't recommend them more. Yeah, so I, so I want to go back and actually give them their, their kind of fair shake. Um, but uh, but I, I haven't yet. But they are currently all installed on my computer, so maybe hey. maybe at some point we'll see we'll see how that that goes. Um, but uh, okay, so so you've worked on on eighty days and now Pendragon. What did did you come from another studio? Did you study video games? Kind of what's your what's your past with with video games? Um, so I started making games when I was at university, sort of as a side thing. Um, my degree was in interactive media, which is related, but it was more sort of making websites and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I kind of learned to code, which was this thing that I was uh, explicitly told by my teachers in school that I should never do. I was very bad at it. I really was. Um, but this was kind of when um, Flash was sort of on the way out, but everyone was still totally using Flash to make indie games because it was just so easy. Um, and I was playing around with Flixel and all of this kind of thing. And, you know, this was like the, the golden age of indie games and like Journey and Meat Boy and all these things were coming out. And I suppose it was a time when I had, I mean, I always played games like all the time, um, but I would sort of gotten jaded with the sort of standard AAA fare. Like even I think like Halo Reach had just come out. And I remember thinking, wow, I loved Halo 3. I've loved all the Halos, but I really just not get into this. And I really fell off games until I discovered the indie scene and then started, you know, making my own stuff and then passing it off as um, like projects for my degree, um, which my lecturers were sort of like, e sure, this counts. And I was like, yes, it definitely counts. Um, and in the end, they gave me a rubbishy grade. And I said, well, I don't care. I've made some video games. And that went off to make games. Uh, first, a little company called Planiac, um, 
who are still around, although I think they're dormant um, in London with this wonderful guy called Rob, who has been making indie games for the longest time, like before it was cool. Um, and I learned a lot from him and we made um, some really interesting stuff. One of the games that we made was called um, Insane Robot Battles, which actually did come out on Steam, although I didn't take it all the way to completion. Um, and around that time, I started playing, uh, yeah, 80 Days and Sorcery. And I realized that they were in the same city as me, which was Cambridge. Um, and I was working in London and that was a sort of, you know, horrible commute um, every day. It was sort of, you know, take four hours out of my day. And I sort of thought, oh, you know, I'd love to join these guys. So I sort of sent them an email and they asked me for coffee and we had coffee and they're like, yeah, sure, come make games with us. Um, and uh, they have joked many times that if they knew how to interview properly, they probably wouldn't have picked me. And that would have been a mistake because, well, it's been really <laughs> fun working with them. And I hope they feel the same way. Um, but it was certainly not a, like a real interview by any means which continues my trend of having never had a proper interview. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that brings me up to sort of joining Inkle. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll let you ask questions there if you had any. <laughs> so, so was uh, Sorcery or, wait, no, you worked, You said you worked on 80 Days, Never mind. Um, uh, so I didn't work on the 80 Days mobile version. I've worked okay. on the original uh, and I sort of played that and then thought, ooh, these guys are, these guys are great. Gotcha. Um, okay. But I did start working on the 80 days steam port which was our first pc game and this was sort of around the time we realized that mobile was becoming quite hard to get noticed on right. um and so that was sort of one of the big reasons that we ported it to steam which had sort of properly just opened up i don't think we had to do the green light process or maybe we did i can't remember um uh, yeah so that was kind of my first thing which is doing a port which is a very nice safe thing for a junior to you know start doing because there's a limited amount of things that you can break <laughs> <laughs> nice okay um yeah so it was, it was interesting um when when i reviewed uh 80 days uh i was actually flying home from visiting my brother in philadelphia and my flight got delayed by like eight hours um and i had just gotten the code to review this game and i figured you know i would maybe play it on the plane or something like that but no i just sat at the bar and kept ordering beer throughout the day <laughs> and play i played through the game like six times i think wow um, one just in a, in a row and um <laughs> and i actually got you you can't find this anymore because uh the whole um ios achievement thing is pretty much gone i don't remember what it was called this feels like it was a really long time ago it's yeah. not actually but we just like know, mobile game completely time. yeah um but whatever you know apple's version of trophies achievements that whole gamer space was it's kind of annoying um, me. it's was i it? i actually had the world record i i had gotten oh, around the world no. in 27 days oh wow um for for like you know until the game was released and then immediately somebody had like a 23 day record but that's obviously. close right but like, i was like under 40. i was like i win i i've never <laughs> had a world record in anything but i did it um <laughs> and nobody can know because nobody else can play the game right now um, <laughs> but um, oh, that's well that's great it's still a claim to fame you can still claim it even yes. if you can't prove it I, exactly exactly um but uh, but anyway 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 yeah that I I loved that game and then went and bought the sorcery games and then and, yeah never played them. But you, <laughs> know. you just need to get stuck in an airport bar again. Apparently, apparently, and I'm you know I don't know how much the the alcohol 
uh, had to do with my enjoyment of the game, but you know, we'll we'll just say that it enhanced it. Uh, probably it's a match made in heaven for certain <laughs> kind of game. It was good. It w- it was a good experience. Uh, <laughs> I've never had a delayed flight that turned out so well before. <laughs> but um, anyway, anyway, moving on from that. Uh, so how long? I know that uh, Heaven's Vault was like an abnormally long development time for you guys. Uh, for like a lot of studios actually, but really for you guys, a lot of a lot of Inkle games have a turnaround of like a year or two at max, and like you said, Heaven's Vault was like four or five years. How long was development for Pendragon or Pendragon or? Uh, well, it depends how you look at it. In some ways, it's our longest development yet, about okay. five years, uh, okay. and in others, it's. A really nice streamlined development of about um, about 14, 15 months. Um, so the story behind that is that Pendragon was originally a little turn-based tactics game that I was playing with in my spare time, and I started making it um, when I was doing the 80 Days port, actually. And it was totally just my own little baby. Um, it was just this thing I was doing for fun. I wanted to see what it was like to make a sort of minimal tactics game. Like, I had this kind of bee in my bonnet about how they should be done, because I... Mm kept trying and failing to learn how to play XCOM. And I was like, ah, this game is too hard. I just need to make one with like (laughs) way less rules. This game has too many rules, which um, I still think is one of the best ways to come about designing a game is to find a game that you've never really played properly, but, but dislike for some reason. And then you have this clear design philosophy of like, okay, here are the things that this game is going to set out to do. Um, And you can feel very strongly about opinions that you haven't actually, you know, earned. (laughs) <laughs> so that's kind of how the game started, was me trying to make like a sort of perfect information game with no randomness, which sort of like how Into the Breach uh, works, actually, in some ways. Um, and I was sort of showing it to Joe and John and lunch breaks, and we kind of just played with it for like three years or something, like all the while that Heaven's Vault was being made as well. Like it was just this thing that we did in lunchtimes and we'd put it down and then we'd pick it back up and we changed the rules and like it changed a lot, but it was always the same kind of game. And it just kind of became the de facto next project just because, you know, we'd just been working on it and we hadn't been working on any other side projects as committedly as we had for this one. So when Heaven's Vault came out, um, the art team um, had more free time than the rest of us who were, you know, working on patches and fixes and all that kind of thing. So the art team basically just sort of started making Pendragon and yeah it just became the next thing but from the release of heaven's vault which i believe was april last year to now so it must be a bit more than 14 15 months um it's just been that yeah it's just been solid development um oh except for the 80 day switch port actually which took me out for a bit so maybe it's closer to a year okay gotcha uh speaking (laughs) of switch ports uh where where is that heaven's vault switch port Ah, well, I am under lock and key. I'm afraid I cannot <laughs> reveal any sensitive information. Um, but I would be remiss if I did not say that it was something that we were, of course, thinking very carefully about. And if there was potentially a version um, that we were playing with, you might think that given how long it's been since the game came out, that it would be very nearly time to announce such a thing if such a thing were in fact to exist. I hope that's cryptic enough for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh all right um okay so so you you guys have been playing around with it uh for for several years but kind of real development's been the last year and a half ish um for uh yeah for totally 
Okay. So it, it is kind of interesting to me though. Uh, I, I feel like just with the, the way that um, the Inkle games are so story based, they, and I don't actually know this for sure, but I would imagine that the story kind of starts first and the gameplay um, is built to kind of support the story that you, you want to tell and the, the kind of interaction between the two. But it sounds like the gameplay was here first for Pendragon, and that sounds kind of like a, a stark contrast to uh, to other Inkle games. Is that fair? Yeah, that's completely fair. Okay. Um yeah, I mean, normally um, John, who is our narrative director, is the person who sort of kicks off a project because he'll want to tell a story about a certain thing. Um, on Heaven's Vault, we wanted to do a kind of Star Wars archaeology thing, sort of mixing like Star Wars and Indiana Jones and sort of that kind of thing. And then we worked out the mechanics afterwards just by the process of like, OK, what do archaeologists actually do? Um, which... Yeah, it was also how 80 Days came about, and uh, I suppose Sorcery was um, developed off the back of something else, but it was still very much like the gameplay reinforces the story. But this one, yeah, it was partly because we already had the game, but it was, I think, also something that John was sort of interested in doing. Um, I know that for some time he kept throwing around this idea of making Rogue, but telling a story, like the original Rogue, you know, with the ASCII stuff. Um, which is a game that I know John grew up playing um, and actually got quite good at. Um, and I think there was just this sort of idea that you could create a story that reacts to the events that's happening um, in the game. And like you can see how that could work. Um, but we've never really seen anyone do it, which is weird. Um, so I think this was like a sort of golden opportunity to see if a sort of tactics narrative blend was even possible at all um so i think john took it up quite enthusiastically and at that point it was really just trying stuff um until it or until we found a way to make it mesh which took a while but when it landed we knew it really sort of worked actually that like the story was actually responding to how you were playing and it wasn't just this sort of layer on top mm. okay all right, well, we'll get more into that in just a bit uh, when we start talking about the game in full. Uh, last question uh, before we get into that, though, is uh, how have things been for you guys since the, the pandemic, since quarantine, since, like, it, it feels like maybe we're coming out the other side, but at the same time, a lot of people are still dying, and it, it seems like maybe people in government just kind of want to ignore that. Uh, but maybe that's just here in America. Uh, how, how are you guys doing? Uh, over across the pond. <laughs> well, it's definitely not just in America. Um, <laughs> like I was looking at a graph earlier, and the graph, the line is going right back up, and it looks like it's deeper than it was the first time. So that's yeah. kind of scary. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah that's everyone's reaction. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, that's happening. Um, but it's been certainly strange for all of us um, to develop a game in as well, just because we haven't really like seen each other in the longest time. Um, like when we were making Heaven's Vault, um, Joe moved to Leicester a bit before that happens and Annie was already in Manchester and that only really left me and John, um, the sort of full-time people in Cambridge. And so we used to hang out at the coffee shop and that kind of stopped around March. So we kind of 
did the last six months development on the game without really like talking to each other in real life, which is really strange. Um, and I don't feel I have like resolved that dilemma yet. It's just been really weird, like with everything happening online and like I wake up, I move into the next room and I make the game. I'm sure it's the sort of the same kind of thing for everyone. It's just been very strange. Yeah. It has. And so we kind of came from this atmosphere of like, you know, we're always in the same room. If you need to ask somebody something, you just sort of tap them on the shoulder and you show them your computer. Um, and then we went to sort of working in coffee shops for a few months, okay. um, which saves a lot of money and was very nice. Uh, and then the pandemic hit. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's kind of been a sort of, I suppose a smoother transition than for a lot of studios who've had to do this very suddenly. Um, got sort of friends working at like Frontier or whatever who are sort of telling me, yeah, I've had to bring like consoles, like dev kits and stuff home. Um, and it's sort of this real surreal thing for them. But for us, I think we've had less problems just because we're a bit more flexible, I suppose. Okay. That's, uh, I think that's, you know, kind of the thing for, for most indie studios. That's, that's one of the uh, the benefits of being small uh, is being a lot more uh, spry, being more agile. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but uh, so everybody is uh, everybody safe, everybody's healthy uh, as far as the team goes. Yeah, yeah, everyone's safe and healthy. Um, Fantastic. Certainly been scarier for John and Joe who have kids and have sure. sort of been you know told they have to send their kids to school, but I think they are all well, which is the only thing that matters right now, really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that. Um, it's always good to have some, some good news in uh, 2020, the year of our Lord. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a, it's, it's been a, it's been a, a decade, you know, it's, it's, been, <laughs> it's been a long year, but uh, all right, well, let's, let's get into kind of the, the meat of the conversation about the game itself. Um, we're here to talk about Pendragon, which just came out um, as of this recording, and it should have only been a few days ago since people are actually listening to this online. Um, but you said that you could not give me an elevator pitch, but I'm going to ask you to <laughs> tell me what this game It doesn't have to be an elevator pitch. It doesn't have to be short, but can you tell me what this game is? Ooh, great question. So Pendragon is... Um, Camelot has fallen. The knights of the round table have scattered across Britain, and um, you can choose to play as uh, any one of the starting cast and must journey to try to save Arthur, who is uh, on the battlefield of Camlan against his nephew and arch nemesis Mordred. Um, and it's a story that takes place right at the end of the sort of um, Arthurian myth. Um, and it's um, quite a tragic story. Arthur is sort of doomed to lose um, everything. This sort of you know great and noble institution that he has founded has fallen apart in front of his eyes, and everything has sort of gone to pot really. Um, and the way that this unfolds is by you travelling across a map of Britain and um, stopping at villages, forests, graveyards, castles, cathedrals, all of the sort of places you expect to find in um, Arthurian times. And the gameplay is a um, very pared down tactics game 
that has a lot of depth to it. So it's more akin to something like chess or checkers than perhaps um, XCOM or Into the Breach. Um, and so the idea is that as you move across these boards, um, your knights are uh, having conversations with each other, they're bonding with each other, they're responding to uh, what's happening on the board. If somebody dies, they'll sort of shout, oh, no, Sir Galad, we needed you. Um, and they'll create bonds based on what happens um, to each other in the story. Um, so it's this sort of very strange blend between sort of uh, very tactical thinking and very um, emotional storytelling. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's it's been interesting for me to to play this. Uh, I've at at the time of this recording, I've got about ten hours into the game. I think I have maybe a dozen kind of runs. Um, so one of, one of the different things about this game is it is kind of a roguelike, wouldn't you say? I mean, well, it's, it's yeah, least, yeah, I think so. Like when you die, you start the game over again. You don't have checkpoints that you go back to or anything like that. Which to an extent, I mean, a lot of a lot of Inkle games have sort of been that way, uh, because you you like in well, I guess uh, the the easiest thing to think of is like eighty days. Um, you know, would, if something happens and um, Phineas Fogg dies, like the the game is just over and you start over. You don't kind of go back <laughs> to a checkpoint, but it is much harder for for uh, Mr. Fogg to to die. Yeah, sure. I mean, you can this try game, really hard. People die hard all the time in, <laughs> in Pendragon. Um, so, but I, I guess the 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 bigger thing in that is that it seems like. Um, Britain is being like dynamically uh, or procedurally generated kind of every time you play the game. Is that? Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah, we kind of scramble the locations. They sort of trend towards a path and we have reasonably thick starting locations based on which um, which hero you choose um, because, you know, a Welsh champion is going to start in Wales, for example. Um, but it's it tends to be um, a similar route per hero although the things that you find on that route are going to be sort of drastically different and you're going to have uh, told a very different story when you finally reach camp Mar. okay and it also it kind of feels like the story is a little looser than a, a a normal game i don't i don't know if i'm thinking no I'm no i think that's think completely right through this as i as i'm trying to say it um but it's you know in in 80 days or in um heaven's vault you you have you know sometimes you know generally pretty short paragraphs but you have multiple paragraphs of descriptions of things of conversations and here you kind of have like you know a sentence here and it kind of sets the mood and you're then you're often doing turns in, in the game um it's not quite as well, it's just not as authored, authored? ultimately. Yeah, okay. um, I know, I think that's completely right. I mean, so, I mean, Heaven's Vault is definitely the story of Elle, and you choose how her story unfolds, mm -hmm. but it's her story in a very specific world, uh, and she is, you know, her own character. Um, and there are sort of a smaller number of authored story beats, I suppose you might say. Mm -hmm. um, it's more like your kind of Dragon Age kind of thing, whereas Pendragon is so much sort of broader and wider. I think really it's the story of a time and a place and a tone 
than the story of any one of the specific characters because like you say the characters can just sort of be killed and that will affect the other characters they'll sort of say oh you know galahad i loved you and that will affect how they go forward but all of a sudden it's not about guinevere's story if she's dead um even if she's a starting character like that's fine um so yeah no i think that's completely fair and that is different for us um because normally we have we start you know from this sort of place of like we want to tell a story about this um and we want to tell that story from this perspective but yeah this is more of a, an, a mood piece i suppose you might say okay that's uh that sounds fair um so how how much is actually kind of dynamically generated kind of as you play and, and how are those story beats spawned because when i play the game it it there's a lot that kind of feels out of my control or maybe I just don't see the connection between the decision that I make and kind of the, the thing that results from it. Uh, for instance, I had a playthrough where I was, I was playing as uh, Sir Gowan and somehow I fell in love with a farmer guy named Gato or Godot. I don't know how his name is pronounced. <laughs> um, and you know, we, we both got special like, moves from it and then of course he died and then and then i died and then the game was over and it was all tragic um very shakespearean because it was like literally like one map they pronounced their love for each other and the next map we all died um, <laughs> but, um but i don't know like, i don't know how any of that happened how <laughs> like what kind sure. of i don't know what's what's deciding that um or no that that wasn't Gowan that was Sir Kay. Uh Gowan uh he he just died from spiders um just a moment ago. Uh, that was <laughs> that was different. I, I li that literally happened before I started playing this. No. Uh, it was Sir Kay and uh Sir Gado that uh or Gado. I, I really don't know how his name is pronounced. <laughs> um but like what what causes relationships like that to to form? Um, obviously I confirmed it by clicking the dialogue of, I love you too, as opposed to, I love you like a brother. Um, but like, how is that stuff coming to be in this game? And I'm sure there's way too much and too, there's too much complexity under the hood to just <laughs> simplify it, but help me understand. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. So the general approach. So, I mean, I suppose I was understanding it by saying that it, it doesn't have like, you know, um, sort of solid narrative running through it because it, it does it's just that it has lots of solid narratives running through it and all of them are optional and all of them are assembled on the fly but the uh, certainly our hope is that all of them have some sort of solid meaning behind them so there is this is the story of how these two people fall in love and then die tragically it's full of those kind of moments and the way that it works is it's the system that heaven's vault used to kind of um, to allow the characters to say intelligent things based on what you knew and where you were and who else was in the room um, without actually having to script all of it um, specifically. So if you know about the ruined temple and you are, I don't know, next to a character who can tell you about the crown that you've got, then that character will look through all of the things that she might possibly want to say. And these are all of the things, you know, like totally unrelated to where you are, um, like what's happened in the story. And it just sort of filters everything that isn't relevant out. 
And it's basically just left with a bunch of choices. And one of them is, oh, you've been there and you have the crown. Oh, I actually have something to say about this. So um, there's like hundreds and hundreds of potential options. And it just picks the one that makes the most sense. Mm. And if you throw enough um, content basically at a system that just picks based on the state of the game, then it assembles a story that feels like it's genuinely reacting to you. Um, and this just takes a lot of content to work. And it's the same thing that the Pendragon does. So the Pendragon will have said, I see you've got this character and this character is also here. And it looks like that they've just um, killed an enemy together or maybe they've shared a campfire or, you know, they've done something that's brought them together a little bit. Um, and then one of the options that might surface is, ah, let's tell a story of love, a, a story of romance. And then it will sort of set them off on I don't know if quest is quite the right word because that makes it sound like it's this very authored linear thing, but rather it the game becomes aware that these two have um, a spark of romance. And then if there is another moment to push that story forward uh, in another moment, then it will pick that up. Um, it's a very strange system. I don't think any other games are really doing it. It's sort of like, I think John would resent this quite a lot, but it's sort of like <laughs> um, when Ken Levine was talking about how he wanted to do narrative Legos it is a lot like Legos. Um, it's got all of these bricks and the bricks sort of fit together. In, and obviously some ways that the bricks might fit together don't make sense. Like if they're in love, then why would they decide to hate each other immediately afterwards? So those two bricks can't go. But if you have one brick that says this person loves this person, and then you have another brick that says this person has a love for this other person, so turns them down with well, those two bricks make an interesting story. Hmm. So it's... Um, assembling a story based on context all the time every turn you take it's kind of saying oh would this be an interesting thing does this make sense yeah let's throw one of those in um so it will fairly reliably generate um, a story of romance or revenge or love lost or whatever every time you play so i i guess what what do you think is the the biggest key to all of that working because in, in all honestly for like my first three or four playthroughs um the game wasn't really jiving with me i think for the most part because for whatever reason i wasn't really picking up party members i've only heard like three campfire tales in right. like 10 hours and it wasn't until i was playing as sir k and like i actually had kind of like had like six party members or or whatever and like things started clicking, it started feeling like a story rather than just kind of like a themed chess game. Right. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, when the characters aren't bouncing off each other, that becomes a lot harder. Um, it's certainly you get more um, character relationships when there are more Lee um, Knights on the board. And that happens a lot more in levels that have a bit more tension to them. So the game gets... Um, allows you to play on more difficult modes as you play it. So the idea is that you you play a game, you win or lose, either way, um, the uh, difficulty that you're allowed to pick goes up, and so you then play the game on a slightly harder mode as you learn the rules. So it's kind of a roguelike that actually gets harder as you play it rather than uh, easier. But the harder levels will encourage you to um, bring multiple knights onto the board. And that's, I think, when the game starts really coming alive because the characters will start talking to each other, reacting to what the other characters do, backing each other up. If one character dies and you can avenge them immediately afterwards, which is something that the game rules will sort of um, allow you to do quite nicely. Um, that's sort of when all the really juicy stuff starts coming out. At least in my opinion. Hmm. Okay. 
who is your uh, who is your favorite uh, character to play as? It's a good one. Uh, I quite like the noises that Kay makes. He's the posh one. Um, <laughs> I, I think he's quite fun. Gawain has some good swearing. Um, Lancelot as well, because my mum is French, so I mean, ah. any any sort of um, hilariously French character is always fun in my book, and he has some very good French swearing. It's a lot of swearing in the game, um, <laughs> the sort of fun variety. Um, oh, I don't have a single favourite. Okay. Let's go with Lance, just Lance? to fly okay. my colours. How about you? I'm curious to know uh, who you played and, and which characters you got along with the most. Um, so probably probably Sir Kay so far, just because like I've I've had the most meaningful story with him so far. Um, like what I played as Lady, uh, I don't know how to pronounce her name. It starts with an R. Uh, uh Rhiannon. Rhiannon. There we go. Uh, that's a lot simpler than it it looks. Um, <laughs> it's got an age in it i know what you mean <laughs> <laughs> so i i literally died on the first table with lady <laughs> oh, no. uh, i did not make it all, like i there were i think two or three wolves and i just could not get into a position where i would attack um one and not be killed by the other until finally all of my um morale was down and i went into a blind frenzy uh, but I didn't realize I had to kill everything. There, there was a pop-up, and I, I apparently just didn't pay attention, so I killed the thing that was in front of me and made it to the edge of the map and then just fell over dead. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. People <laughs> <laughs> of the knights like, deliberately start off in like battle locations. I think maybe uh, Lance does as well. He starts in a castle with like a black knight who are the hardest enemies. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. Um, actually, that's kind of the, the one bit of feedback that we are actively working on is basically that we got quite good at the game and our testers did too. Um, so we didn't realize that the easiest difficulty, which, you know, you're not supposed to win first time, but you are supposed to get past the first level, was maybe a bit too hard. So Yeah, um, yeah, I haven't, honestly, I have not moved it up from anecdotal, and I, I have not <laughs> oh, no. finished the game yet. Um, right. I've made it to Mordred probably four or five times, and I one of my questions was, is he killable? But now that the uh, Steam achievements are live, I see there is an achievement for killing Mordred. So I know that's true. I just yeah. have not <laughs> I haven't figured out how. It's um, funny. When we put Mordred so... in, me and John were like, is he too easy? Oh, well, maybe you just beat Mordred every time, and that's the story. And we are like, oh, well, never mind. I guess, like, <laughs> so it's it's funny to hear that. Um, I, mean, I guess this is one of the things of working in Pandemic, is we've had a very limited playtesting pool sure so um yeah it's been a strange one for us because normally we would have taken it to festivals and this kind of thing would have right. cropped up quite quickly i think we would have seen people you know really struggle on the easiest difficulty and we'd have sort of said oh okay we need to do something maybe to explain the rules better or you know just to put less knights on the board which <laughs> is what we're doing now um <laughs> We hope it's a testament to the um, depth of the game that we have absolutely no problems beating the game, even if we're barely paying attention on sure. the easiest mode. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, I think we've heard that from enough new players that it's something we are taking quite seriously. So hopefully when you next go to play on Anecdotal, you'll find it's a bit more um, anecdotal. It, anecdotal, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a... Um... Do you have a favorite story that's kind of been told uh, with the game of, you know, particular characters coming together or 
avenging a loved one or or anything like that hmm i do uh, i don't want to give it away too much but so you can play through the game quite a few times and you might sort of think hmm where's like excalibur and where's all of like the classic king arthur stuff hmm. um, and all of that stuff is there it's just in the ingle fashion very hard to find um so i think my stories are the canonical Arthurian myths that most players won't find, especially on their early playthroughs. Um, I think there's some really, I think some of the most authored stories sort of come out from that one. I'm quite excited to, to sort of hear the sort of 1% of players uh, who play it on Steam and then find this thing and they're like, oh my God, this thing happened and it was really good. I'm going to keep describing it as this thing rather than being specific because I don't want to give it away, but it what? is great. Okay. Uh, yeah, there there is. A, I guess to to continue on with no spoilers, there is a Arthurian artifact that you can find. That I think that that actually happened in my my Cirque playthrough as well. And I think it's part of the reason that I I enjoyed that one so much is I found this thing and it gave me a new ability, and that was really cool. It actually saved my life once. Oh, brilliant! Um, but uh, and and it kind of I realized that then. Uh, that the game is not about getting to Kamlan. It's like that's that's your ultimate goal. But like in in my early playthroughs, it's like okay, let's keep going north. Let's get to let's get to Arthur. Let's let's save the day uh, or die trying, and and we'll sure enough die trying. Um, <laughs> sure. But the my kind of last couple of playthroughs has been more like, well, I'm just gonna go around the map. And, like, if somebody says that there's, you know, maybe a particular fighting instrument that's in a lake somewhere, uh, I'm going to go try to find that. I'm going to go head towards that area where that's, you know, popped up on the map um, because that seems like that would be cool. And it – I don't know. It's it. I think that's kind of – No, we I, totally agree with that. I mean, this is the thing that John always tries really hard to put into all of our games is – um, he considers it a success if people value the story more than they value uh, winning at the game. And that's a really hard thing to do, right? Because when people play a game, the implicit goal is to get to the end. And the story, well, they don't know anything about the story. Why should they care about that? Right. Um, so the ultimate goal is for people to start making um, strategic trade-offs against the story where there's something that they really 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 want to see happen emerge you know from the characters from the plot and they know that they're going to have to sacrifice some of their you know game achievement to do um and i mean that sort of that runs through all of our games like hopefully when you're playing heaven's vault you stay true to your heart and you take sacrifices with you know, your relationships that might have led to good things with other characters because you don't want to you know be their dog or perhaps in 80 days you decide that you want to go down to like the horn of africa because you think i bet you know i keep hearing like rumors of this king who lives there and i bet there's something really good even though like it's obviously a terrible way to go all the way around the world um <laughs> and we we try a little bit to balance that out as well so if you do go off the beaten path you are rewarded for it um but there's obviously no way that the player can really know that up front um they have to to want to take that sacrifice um so i'm happy to hear you say that because to some extent that means that the plot has kind of 
um, become the main part of it, which is, you know, the, the hallmark of a real hallmark of a real Inkle game, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just taking a little, maybe it's because there's more, I don't want to say meat to the gameplay, but I guess I'm going to say meat to the gameplay. <laughs> that it, it takes a little bit longer to figure that out, even though, like, if you've had experience with Inkle games, you would kind of expect that sort of thing. Um, still, like, I don't know, games always kind of want to drive you towards the end. So you expect that to happen and you expect getting to the finish line to be your actual goal in the game where it's not really. And because there's more quote unquote air quotes, you know, gameplay, um, then it it takes a little longer to figure out that that's the way either you can or, you know, should play the game. Yeah, right. No, I completely agree. And yeah, no, I think meat to the gameplay is completely fair. Like it is a, um, it's quite a hardcore game in a, um, a weird use of the word hardcore. It's like right. hardcore <laughs> as in if you play a bad turn, like permanent things will happen very quickly. Like right. if you accidentally put yourself in harm's way, you'll just die. You'll just like, somebody will just come and kill you. And then, you know, somebody will shriek, no, he's dead. But no, they'll be dead. Um, and that was one of the hardest things to get right, because obviously, like, when players feel that, they normally think, oh, my God, can I undo? That's, like, terrifying. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the root of the game, I suppose, is that it came out of this sort of chess-like mentality where every turn is supposed to be very important. And this was something that, from a game design point of view, I feel um, quite strongly about, is that... Um, I was sorry. I, I've been told not to sort of rag on other games, but they're quite big, <laughs> so they won't mind. Um, I play. I, I've always loved the Fire Emblem games, like a lot since I was okay. a kid, and I really didn't enjoy the new one because there's so much moving your party from one side of the map to the other, and you think about how many times in those games you're actually being asked to make a genuinely interesting strategic decision. Mm. And it's, like, quite rare, actually. And, like, they actually have a button for, like, autoplay in, like, a sort of offensive or defensive mode. And I think that's because they realised that, actually, to, like, the, the strategy isn't particularly deep anymore. And you have so many people on the board, and most of the time what you're doing is just moving them closer to the exit. Mm. Um, so I really wanted to make a game where every action you make wasn't just kind of, like, house cleaning. It was something really important. And so it really puts the onus on you to make decisions that are um, interesting and permanent and will radically change the shape of the boards with one little step. And they are small steps, like you are moving one unit, one piece um, in that kind of chessy kind of way where you move one piece and then it opens up all of these new things that you have to think about. Um, and I mean, I hope that the depth of the game does start to emerge um, as you play. But certainly me and John, who have played um, first the prototype in this rather a lot, um, we often find ourselves in really interesting tactical decisions, especially on the harder modes where you really can't afford to make any mistakes. Um, so that was kind of my my starting point for the game design. Um, I forgot how we even started on this, and I just went off on a rant that's, on Fire Emblem. That's okay. It's one of my many rants. <laughs> <laughs> that is okay. 
Decisions that um, matter in games. I think that was my point. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so that was actually, uh, that was kind of a thought. I don't know. I, anytime a character dies, I guess, I wish there was like a rewind button. Because I was like, oh, I didn't <laughs> yeah. mean to do that. Um, yeah, yeah. So that sounds like it's completely antithetical to to what you're trying to do with the game. But would you consider putting a rewind button in there uh, <laughs> on maybe like, like the easiest on the super anecdotal difficulty. Um, possibly on the very easiest one. We actually had a restart level button for a while, but the problem was undoing at any point in like a sort of narrative focused game um, is that you kind of lose all attachment to the story. Like you don't, if, if a character can die because you made one decision, it really hurts like it really right. hurts or like if you get this opportunity because of this one specific move that you did it feels really real and really exciting but if you can undo that at any point and do something else then all of a sudden the highs sort of become a bit muted and like it mutes everything like the lows are obviously less defeating because you can just undo it and the highs are less exciting because you know that they're not permanent um but we did put in the uh, confirm move step, which right. we definitely didn't have in the original game. And the, you know, every time you make a move in this game, um, it will tell you explicitly if it's a move that will put your team member in like serious harm. And sometimes the AI won't actually act on it, especially on the easy modes. It'll say, you know, if you go here, the wolf could kill you if it wanted to. And um, about 70% of the time on the easy modes, I think they won't. Um, huh. it's quite a lot I think on the easy mode but we are that's sort of why we were so surprised to find that um, people struggling on anecdotal was so common um, because the AI is often forgiving but perhaps not nearly enough um, I think we were talking earlier about having it so the AI would um, fail to capitalize unless you'd done like a bad move twice in a row for example or something like that um, but yeah, we kind of had designed safety nets into the game. And you know, there's also a health system where um, a knight, some knights can um, be killed more than once or be killed. They can sort of be wounded on the field and then they can't play anymore, but they'll you know come back for the next one if you can survive the battle. I was going to um, ask, how, how does health, besides just deteriorating as you play, if you don't replenish yourself with food um, or your, your health with food, like how, how does the health system actually work? Because it seems like when people, I guess when, when things go bad in my game, like they go bad, everybody dies and it's just over. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so if I, I guess kind of like a, um, uh, Bioware, uh, black Isle obsidian RPG sort of thing where like, if you still have health, but you're downed in combat, once you finish the board, people come back. Yeah. They still then have they'll parts. come back. Okay. Yeah, that's that's gotcha. right. Yeah. So they're not gone for good. Some of the knights will have one health. And so if they, you know, are wounded once then they'll be gone. Right. And there are ways that you can uh, permanently modify um, your health as well. But uh, yeah, and so this was um, how to start on this one. One of the key themes in this game is sacrifice. To win at the game, you have to have your knights valiantly sacrifice themselves for the cause which opens up opportunities maybe you can um you know move galahad into this position which pulls the wolf away from the exit which allows gwen to make a, a quick dash for it 
Um, and so one of your characters will sort of nobly sacrifice themselves to the cause, which, you know, is in keeping of the um, of the story as well. Right. Um, and this was kind of, you know, in the original game, is it was um, this very strategic trade-offs thing, like in chess or checkers or whatever, you think, okay, this guy will die, and then this guy will die, and then this guy will die, but I'll come out on top. Um, we added the health, basically realizing that players were just never going to want to put their beloved characters who they'd invested, you know, all of this time and effort into um, in harm's way, even if it was the right thing to do for the game. They just weren't going to be willing to do that. So our health system was kind of us saying, well, you can sacrifice them and it's going to hurt and it's going to, to change the story meaningfully but they won't be gone for good, um, at least in some cases, or at least you're committed at that point. Um, so, so hopefully that'll change the way you play it a little bit as well. Yeah. So I, I haven't, I have, I've never intentionally made a move where the little skull icon was on there because it's like, oh, this wolf is going to kill me if I do that. Um, <laughs> and also, I've never sac—I only sacrificed one person. That was, um, I haven't seen it so much as I've continued to play the game. Uh, but in my first like two run throughs, uh, characters were always having like little thought bubbles that were like, Hey, I want to do this. And yes. I had just gotten, um, Morgana Le Fay and she was like, I want to sacrifice myself. And I was like, okay. Oh, she's dead. I, oh, and Guinevere's dead. And, and uh, again, everybody, like I said, when, when people die in, in my games, they, they <laughs> sure. all die at the same time. Um, sure. So I, I never realized that I could actually, you know, <laughs> I could make a sacrifice, but it, it not be permanent. Cause it's like, oh, if, if I sacrifice somebody, then everybody just dies apparently. So let's right. not do that. Um, oh God, that's interesting. Okay, <laughs> we're going to have to put another tutorial in for that. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, noted um so the idea with the the sacrifice um hint system in is yeah we kind of noticed that people weren't sort of feeling the desire to you know kill their characters oh yeah and no so definitely not That's... every now and then um a character will say i'm not gonna like it but if you put me here i can um I can set this wolf up so that you can kill him afterwards. So whenever you see the the bubble that says I want to sacrifice myself, there will that will always set you up for a positive. It will always allow you to win the game or to get more than than your trading. So you can always kill at least one enemy if okay. you um, see what the game has noticed and is sort of hinting about. Um, but certainly you do have to follow it through if you sacrifice the character. Right. They are still going to, you know, be wounded. Um, you have to spot what the opportunity is that they've just opened up. Gotcha. So do you do you have to kill all of the enemies on the board in order to get your character back? Or can you escape and get uh, You can just back? escape so long as you okay. complete the level. Um, if you get to the other side of the board, the enemies will always turn and flee. Um, and you can also make them turn and flee if you sort of deplete their own um, morale, um, which is easier to do with, say, scared-looking villagers than it is for, you know, the, the Black Knights of Mordred, for example. Okay. Um, okay. That's uh, you're, you're helping me out a lot, I think, in my, my future partners. <laughs> I'm here to offer uh, advice. Is, <laughs> this, is, this is good. This is helpful. Um, so what, what, one thing that I was kind of curious about uh, is when did the story aspect the you know fall of camelot and all that when did that become part of what pendragon was 
Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. We were thinking about this the other day. It's kind of been an Arthurian game for a really long time, um, and it sort of stuck without us noticing. Um, and I think as soon as, like at one point, we were throwing around the idea of like, you know, if you have to imagine that the, the game that we were playing before it was Pendragon was very much counters on a grid. It didn't have any theme at all. Um, and at one point, we were sort of talking about how, oh, it could be two lawyers making arguments, and it would sort of... Yeah, it was like really weird abstract themes that honestly would never have worked. Um, and at one point, I think hey, we just you guys made a game about space archaeology, so don't say <laughs> lawyers arguing wouldn't work. That's well, I mean, I love the Ace Attorney game, so I would be so happy to do a lawyer game. That would be so much fun. I mean, lawyers are great um, in fiction, anyway. Um, so yeah, I think I think. I think the Arthurian myth is something that John has always loved. I think uh, I think he's told me before that his favourite book was one of the many retellings of the Arthurian saga. Um, and so I think when we realised that it was a theme that obviously fits the game, because it's about, you know, counters killing each other becomes people with swords killing each other really quite easy. Um, and it has this sort of wonderful cast of characters and it has exploring a map and it has all of the sort of Inkle staples as well as a story that's, you know, so rich and developed already and has all of these um, brilliant tonal and sort of thematic things running through it. But they're also vague enough, like there is no... Um, canonical Arthurian myth there's like 10 different retellings you know some of them are very Christian because of the time they're written in some of them are very French because they were written by very French people some of them were written you know around World War One um and they're, they're really about Nazis and you know like the 30s and this kind of thing like there are so many retellings and none of them are canonical so it's so easy to take that kind of myth and everybody recognizes the characters and the staples but you can really invent your own stuff in it and it doesn't feel out of place it doesn't feel like fan fiction because the whole thing is fan fiction. It's kind of like Robin Hood or something. Like right. you kind of just need the characters and some woods and like an evil baron, and then anything you do in that will fit. So I can't actually remember why, you know, how the first spark of that came in. But as soon as it did, it was just really obvious that yeah, like this fits really well. Um, the only thing we never worked out was whether people actually liked Arthurian myths or not. <laughs> And we still don't know. Like we were talking to somebody yesterday. It was, yeah, we were talking to somebody yesterday. I think it was one of the Gama Sutra guys. And they were saying, oh, when I saw it was an Arthurian game, I got to admit, I, I wasn't very excited because I don't really, because I don't really like that mythos. It's like, how can you not like Arthurian stories? Like they're like knights and shining armor with swords. It's just so cool. It's like, to me, it's like as good as pirates or something, you know, yeah. everyone likes pirates. Um, but maybe it's like a British thing or maybe it's quite a niche thing. I mean, there certainly haven't been any good retellings of it recently. Like they've done enough. They did a film a few years ago, but nobody watched it. Right. So I feel like it's um, a theme or a story or a set of stories that has yet to reemerge in the modern age. Um, but it's sort of there bubbling under the surface. Like we need a sort of um, a BBC Sherlock Holmes retelling kind of thing you know something to bring it back into the popular imagination it could be really um, good i mean i'm curious what, what, what did you think when you heard that we were doing an arthurian mist did you sort of go "Ooh, i'm i like that story or did you go what you know much about that or oh that sounds rubbish or uh i i think my first thought was oh yeah i did a report on the uh you know sir gowan and the green knight when i was in high school 
That right. okay. I know about that. Uh, it's Inkle. <laughs> They're British. That makes sense. Uh, now that you're telling me it could have yeah. been a lawyer game, I'm I'm much happier that it's it's Arthurian. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. W- weirdly, I think my my biggest ties to the Arthur legends are from uh, from the Witcher Thank games. Oh, the Witcher, because, because there's always a lady of the lake and there's always a sword to get in like every <laughs> single Witcher game. So yeah, right. Um, and even no, it's the, true. the it's last become fancy in some ways. Um, the last weird, Witcher book is is called The Lady of the Lake. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't love them. I highly recommend the short stories, uh, The Last Wish and uh, Sort of Destiny. But I'm not a huge fan of the actual like saga. Um, Witcher Three is is the best version of the Witcher out there. So just play that, and you'll be fine. Um, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I I was sort like I definitely wasn't like oh man Arthurian stuff that sucks. Like when I when I saw trailers for the Guy Ritchie movie a couple of years ago, I was like I like Guy Ritchie. There hasn't been any Arthur movies in a long time. I'll watch this, and then apparently it was terrible, and I didn't. <laughs> um, so it's I don't know. It's it's something that can it can be intriguing if it seems like somebody's doing an interesting take on it. But it also seems like something that, while it hasn't actually saturated the market, it kind of feels like it's always been there in a sense. So it's yeah, it, right. I mean, it's kind of a lot of the it it is in fantasy stories, even yeah. though I think King Arthur is not sort of fantasy in the way that like Tolkien is. Right. I think yeah, you're right. Like you know, chasing a magical sword. Um, and running around a sort of leafy woodland with it is is pretty on point for both, I suppose. <laughs> it's yeah. weird how two things can be so similar and yet also so very clearly not the same. Like, right. it isn't actually a fantasy story, despite having a lot of the same tropes. Um, I'm sure John would have some very good opinions on this. He's a writer <laughs> and like he's you know, he had this big stack of all of the different books that he was going through and we started on this. Um, but at no point did we ever sort of like start I mean just definitely some ideas did come from um fantasy. Yeah. But I don't think we were explicitly reading fantasy stories to get inspiration for this game just because it wasn't along the same lines. At least that's how we felt about it. It's it's a hard one to pin down. Um I mean, we haven't talked about Monty Python yet, which is the weird <laughs> thing. That's everybody's real touchstone is Monty Python. I I will confess I'm not actually a huge fan of Monty Python. <laughs> Fair enough. I, yeah, no. I mean, it's the law here. You have to be, but I'm, I'm sure. Confused. I'm sure, but I I don't live there where that's the law, so it's, <laughs> I, I get to circumvent that one. Um, one of the things that I I think that might make Arthurian legends. Uh, less appealing right now in kind of our, our current climate. And I, I don't mean 2020 specifically, but you know, last 15 years or so is just looking at the way that we kind of deconstruct heroes right now. Like with, with classic Arthurian legends, like you've got all these really great and noble heroes that are willing to lay down their lives at a, a moment's notice and and we don't really like that right now. Uh, no, like that's we, completely we want to like tear down our heroes and like see what really makes them tick. And you know, to a large degree, like 
I, I don't think I've played anybody in this game that seems like, you know, the quote-unquote classic um, hero. I mean, like, Gowan is slurring speech, like, pretty much every time he talks because he's just drunk the whole game. Yeah, um, right. And, like, you know, Guinevere <laughs> has already cheated on Arthur and right. is now living in a convent and, like, Lancelot has gone back to France. It's It's after the perfect world of Camelot with all of its, you know, heroes... Yeah. has has died like mm -hmm. the dream of um britain being ruled by just and true rulers that's all dead um and this is the story of these characters trying to redeem themselves right so i think i completely agree like the classic arthurian thing which is basically you know perfect characters coming in contact with other perfect characters right and like it's like you know the unstoppable objects um sort of thing like yeah. that's how the books tend to be we were very consciously not trying to make it about that um because you're right that's not the story of the times that we live in um mordred's and um you know as a, a figure who who all he wants is power he's destroyed everything that was good about the world for um a selfish sort of personal quest he just wants to overthrow arthur because all he wants is power and he's willing to lie and deceive the people for that we felt that that was very completely 2020 <laughs> <laughs> that was so that that was actually going to be another question that i had is i don't know if it was intentional or not but do you feel like there is a corollary between the downfall of camelot and brexit and 2020 and just all of those things but i feel like you're saying yeah no so. absolutely <laughs> that, was, that was definitely running through there i mean john's um john was the writer on all of this sort of thing but we have had many conversations going back from when we really started development on this thing about how that's what this story that was what the undercurrent of the story was yeah. um ultimately um when we started seriously thinking about it brexit had just happened and it was increasingly clear that, like, the leaders that we had were, like, power-hungry liars, effectively. And the perhaps not perfect world that we had before, but certainly, you know, it was easy to look back at, like, the 90s and the early 2000s, especially the 90s, as kind of being this, you know, a, a peaceful time, um, a civil time. Right. And it's very easy to look at today and sort of see how that's fallen apart and... Um, yeah, it was completely, completely intentional. Good to know. Good to know. And we hope that came across, actually. I think that's quite important to us that you play these characters and, you know, regardless of whether you share the opinions or not, the tone of it still comes across. Like, that it feels like a story that is about something, that is meaningful, um, that it conveys, you know, the story that we wanted to tell. I think that is really important to us. Well, and, and I will just say um, that I appreciate you guys being a smaller developer and sticking to that idea rather than being like, oh, no, it's not political at all. Um, <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's um, such a weird argument. It is so bizarre. Um, but, uh, you know, what, whatever, I guess, keeps their lights on or whatever. I, I don't yeah. know, but anyway, moving on. Um Okay, so I guess we, we've talked about this game for a long time. Uh, one final question about it before we go on to the end game. Uh, is there a possible mobile or console version of it in the future? Is that a, a, a you know, a starlight in your eye? It is on the cards. Or... Okay. 
Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a twinkle in the eye. Twink, that's um, that's we... what I was looking for. It's starlight <laughs> in the eye. I don't know. My brain's just oh, I haven't poet. had enough coffee yet. I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely something we're thinking about. We are uh, all big Switch fans, and all big. We used to be big mobile players, and so we'd love to see it on those platforms. Um, keep tuned. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. All right. Well, we are going to move on to the end game now, uh, which is one of my favorite sections of the show. There's only three, and it's my show, so they're actually all my favorite, but this one <laughs> is one of my favorites. Um, all right. First question is relatively simple, but not necessarily easy to answer, and they all get worse from here. Uh, first question is, if you could go out drinking with a video game character, who would you want it to be? Oh, uh, what's the name of the guy in Yakuza? Uh, Kazami? I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> him. A million times him. He'd okay. Be, I mean, it would be scary, but you it know, you keep it safe. <laughs> it would be terrifying. But he's so noble, you know? And, like, you got to... I mean, it would only be interesting if some thugs put a fight on you, but having <laughs> played those games, that seems to happen all the time. Uh, Kazuma Kiryu? Sounds Something about like right, that? yeah. Uh, <laughs> something so like that i i think i own one of the yakuza games and i've, I've never played it because that's oh, what that's i do I, I buy games and then don't play them that's that is my... <laughs> like if gta was like a lot more fun like gta <laughs> is fun in its own way but it's a sort of fairly serious fun yakuza does like just thugs all over the place and just it's so silly it's i oh, love it it's like katamari meets gta <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, all right, cool. Uh, well, that that seemed pretty easy for you. We're gonna move on to the next game. If you or next question, if you could play any video game over again for the first time and get that first hand, first time experience again, uh, you don't have to worry about the game aging poorly or anything like that. You just get to re-experience the joy of, of the first play. Uh, what game would you want that to be? Ooh, that's a good one. Um. That's a really good one. I mean, in some ways, it would be something really silly, like Goose Game or, like, genital jousting, just because, like, they're only fun for a really short time, but it's just such an intense moment of joy when you first start playing them. Like, there's just nothing like them, and they just deliver exactly what they want so perfectly. So I think it would have to be, yeah, like, one of the many comedy games, like Surgeon Simulator or something like that, that okay. you maybe wouldn't want to replay a lot, but they're just so great the first time you sort of <laughs> jump into them. Gotcha. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Uh, what is a blind spot that you have in video games, either a franchise, a series, or a genre that you feel like you should have played, but you haven't? So until very recently, I'd never played Final Fantasy VII, which I have now played, but I played the remastered one. And all of the bits that I didn't like, people have told me on new. And all of the bits <laughs> that I really liked, everyone was like, oh, you're going to play the original. And so I feel like it's a game I still haven't played and that I really need to have played because it's, you know, that game that people still talk about 20 years later. Yep. Um, but I also don't want to play the old one because, one, it looks old, <laughs> like really old in that kind of, wow, polygons kind of way. Yeah. Um, but also because I think I've played all of the good bits in the first third of the game and I don't want to have to do all of the JRPG bits again. <laughs> I've never played a Final Fantasy game either um, and I, I don't want to. So, uh, good luck <laughs> that with that. That if, <laughs> if you decide to go out on that endeavor, good luck. Um, early <laughs> early 3D games are, are hard to go back to because while while 2D games can still look great 
20, 30 years on, you can't make early 3D games look great. It's, they just no. they just look bad. It's, it's yeah, amazing. it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, but uh, and I, I don't know. There's at whatever point like you got into 3D games, I feel like you can have nostalgia blinders on. Like yeah. I, I, I kind of skipped a lot of games from um, from NES to the original Xbox, so like most of the '90s, um, and so for whatever reason, like a lot of games from early 2000s still look great in my eyes, even though they don't. Uh, but you know, to me, they're they're beautiful, uh, like some people's kids. Um, <laughs> So, okay, so Final Fantasy VII, maybe, possibly. You should have played it, but you haven't, and you're probably not going to. It's okay. Yeah, I'm not quite um, convinced I have played it that way. <laughs> um, all right, so next question is, what is a, a good trend in video games that you want to see more of? Uh, yeah. This can be gameplay. This can be studio practices. This can, this can be whatever. Uh, just something positive in games that you want there to be more of. Um, you know, there's usually a lot of really positive things happening in games. There's a lot of things happening in games. <laughs> uh, something I'm really glad about is that games are starting to respect players' time more. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partly because audiences are growing up and have less time. But, like, the, you know, the Final Fantasy VII 40-hour, you know, cutscene-ridden thing is increasingly, like, uncommon, actually. Um, and it's really nice to see, like, especially indie games, they are things that you can pick up and play very, very quickly. Um, and we don't make campaigns as long as they used to be, partly because people weren't getting through them, but also because short is sweet. Right. Um, and I'm really happy to see that. They, they, uh, Studio Project Red just announced that um, Cyberpunk 2077's main campaign will be shorter than the witcher threes even though the world is actually bigger and that is right such good news yeah i'm so happy to hear that because i never finished the witcher three because it was too long um and i was really enjoying it so i'd love to get to the end i played the witcher two like five times uh but (laughs) i've never made a second playthrough on the witcher three because i always get to a point where i'm just like it's so big i can't Yeah, and people uh, keep telling me that the best bit is the DLC. Like, yeah, but you have to play like the whole game to get to that point. No, I'd you don't. You can actually really you can actually start at uh, I think it's like a level thirty five character and just jump into the DLC if you want to. Thank you. Oh, uh, that's yeah. good. Uh, and I I really wish. Uh, so uh, the the best bit I think is is the blood and wine DLC. That's um, what I keep doing. And what I, I wish it was just released on its own because, like I said, you can get the complete edition and it's often on sale for like ten or fifteen dollars, um, and you can just jump into that DLC. But there's nothing really that tells you you can do that. So, like, if you want to play that DLC, why would you buy this complete edition of the game that gives you like two hundred hours of gameplay? Like, I wish Blood and Wine was just released on its own for people to to play because that's yeah. that's like 20 to 30 hours of content and then it's over and like yeah, that's more than enough that sounds yeah, great people can do that so yeah uh but you can't actually do that I, I feel like people just don't know it so Ooh. yeah go go uh go do that oh, well, uh, do I that know. instead of final fantasy 7 uh there's gonna be a lot of people <laughs> mad but i don't care um, <laughs> uh okay so flip side of that question 
uh, what is a, what is a bad trend in game or bad trope in games that you wish there was either less of or it would just go away entirely? Hmm. There's no fixing this, but it's really hard for discoverability is increasingly a problem. It's just really hard to keep track of all of the new releases because there are so many games and there are so many good games and I never know how to find them. I'm only aware of stuff that gets reported on and so we've kind of got this system where it's better to make a game that gets reported on as opposed to making a good game. I really worry that if Spelunky 2 had come out and it wasn't Spelunky 2, it was just this random thing, mm. it would have flown under the radar because like, you know, it looks nice and all, but it doesn't look you know like it's not you know hd shiny right um and i think there are a lot of things that just slip totally under the radar that deserve um a lot of praise absolutely absolutely uh curation of video games has always been a terrible thing everywhere <laughs> yeah um, and I, I don't know how to fix it but no no one seems uh, to uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. all right uh, so second to the last question, uh, you have gotten to work on games for several years now, and that is awesome. But if you could do any other profession, what would you like to try your hand at? Ooh, good one. Uh... You know what? I've never had to answer that question too seriously. It's, uh... <laughs> I, like, I looked into games, which was like my version of becoming an astronaut or something. Although astronaut would be really good. <laughs> Uh, I've given that as an option, but I, I don't know if anybody's ever actually chosen astronaut. No, let's run with it. I mean, let's face it. It would be really cool. Um, sure. It just sounds quite hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess yeah. everything is hard. So so if you got to be an astronaut, um, what is the thing that you would like to explore? Mars, another planet, a, an asteroid out in the belt, Venus? Like, what, what do you – what would – you want to make your mark on your where would you want to plant the flag mm, that's a good question i guess i'm not like the flag planting type i okay. like the idea of just being in space just having to <laughs> around. the view looks lovely you know <laughs> uh, you know maybe in my lifetime i mean it's always fun to think you know like you know things keep going as they are now there's a small chance that if i become like a millionaire that when i'm 70 i could pay someone a lot of money and i could go into space <laughs> and fly around and then you know, crash land back to Earth. <laughs> That'd be nice. All right. Fantastic. All right. So, um, last question. Uh, you get to go out drinking with uh, Kiryu, and you get to ask him one question, and he responds. What is your question, and what is his response? If I had the response, then the question is meaningless, but I would definitely ask him how he does that pile driver thing where he, like, slams their heads into the floor because, one, I mean, it's brutal, and, like, it looks like they get up after that, but do they? <laughs> like, I need to know, um, but I need to know how physics, how he thinks <laughs> physics works. <laughs> uh, how do physics work? That's that's what you want to ask the Yakuza uh, guy that's going to pile drive you <laughs> into the ground. That's... <laughs> Uh, fantastic. All right. Well, that is that is it. You have completed the end game and thus uh, the interview. Thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me about Pendragon and a bunch of other stuff. Um, if you could send us out by letting people know where they can go to get their hands on the game. 
Yeah, absolutely. You can get Pendragon right now on Steam. You can also find us at Inkle Studios on Twitter, where you will also find links to our Discord community, and you can chat about all things Heaven's Vault, 80 Days, and Pendragon. Fantastic. Well, Tom, thank you once again for sitting down and chatting with me, and best of luck as you guys uh, make this game easier for me. I would really appreciate it, and as you work on your next project, I can't wait to, to talk to you guys later about whatever that is. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you.